So I ask you to turn to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. This is almost the last sermon. There's one more we'll go through next week, and we will be done with our time in this epistle. We have been in this epistle since I have been here in September, since I got here in September, and it's taken us this long by God's grace. And I believe that the Lord has been teaching us about how to view ourselves as a church. Um, no matter how young you may be, and no matter how much um, spiritual maturity you may have, we are the called out ones, what the church is. So what the Lord did. Is, has been teaching us about the church as we see this church in Thessalonica. And we're going to pick it up today in verse 19 and read through verse 22, pray, and then see what the Lord will teach us from there. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. And as we are reading this, um, I, I want us to, to think about why are you here? Why are you not at this why are you not at a different church? Or why are there so many denominations? Right? Why are there so many churches? If you go out of this church and make a left and go down Franconia all the way to Springfield Mall, I think I counted somewhere like 12 churches. And if you go the other way, you will find another five. So it's, it's like a ridiculous amount of churches just on Franconia Road on the left, on the right. So why are there so many churches within like a three-mile radius? Right? And why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many religions even? And how do we know that we are at the right church? How do you know that you are actually at the right church where the Lord would have you and, and this is teaching you the right thing? How do you know? Because people leave this church and go to another one, or you, leave, you left your church and you came to this one, maybe. I don't know. Why? Why do people leave churches? Why do we come here from another church, or why do we leave this church and go to another one? And how do we know it's the right one? So with that, let's read our text for this morning. As Paul writes... Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but examine all things, hold fast to which is good, to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we come to you to draw on your grace and your mercy yet again, so that we ask you, Lord, to give us spiritual insight as we read the spiritual words, as we study your spirit-filled word, we can only depend on you to reveal to us the truth that is in it, to convict us of its reality and its application and implication to our lives. So we come before your throne, submitting our will before yours, so that you may do with us whatever you will. You may convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. You may conform us into the image of Christ Jesus as we look at your word today. 
Father, we ask you and we trust that you will do so for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So let me ask another question. If I hadn't asked any enough questions yet, let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard this expression when you talk to your friends? I am not religious, I am spiritual. I have my own, or here's another one. I have my own personal relationship with God. I don't think I'm religious, but I am spiritual. So with that being said, the question, I, the question at hand is, what is spirituality? How do we know what the real spirituality is? How do you know? How do we know how, what teachers to avoid? What teachers or what preachers? Because so, right now we are in an abundance of information. We live in an information age whereby you don't even have to go to church to listen to a sermon or to, to be blessed by a worship service, so to speak. All you got to do is just go on YouTube and then just pull up your favorite preacher, whoever says whatever you want, and you just follow them and you can follow their church and you can sing along on YouTube video, I mean YouTube music or Spotify and what have you. But how do you actually know that you're being fed the right thing? How do you know that your spiritual walk is the right one? The answer is you need to discern. We need discernment. And as a church, we need to be a discerning church. Hence the title for our message this morning, to be a discerning church. But as we are being extremely discerning, we also need to guard against this cold type of discernment. I want to give these to you up front. We don't want to be always kind of doubting everything and always worried about, is this right? Is it, is it wrong? And then be cold about finding out. And even the Lord warns the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2, and four, 2 to 4, um, as he speaks to this church, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you put the to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. So this church is a very doctrinally sound, very orthodox in the, in the real sense of the, the, the meaning of the word, not the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. That's not what I'm saying. Right? When you hear orthodox, I mean like really by the book. They are really doctrinally sound. They know their Bibles inside and out. And they can tell the fake from the real. But look, listen what he says. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So they have grown cold because they've been extremely discerning. Their discernment was so high that everything that, that, is a, that goes a little outside of it, and they just forgot about the love that they had for Christ and the love that they may show for one another. So we, don't, we want to guard against that as we are listening to this message about being a discerning church. 
we want to guard against being a cold, discerning church. We want to be a loving and yet discerning church. And this is why in our text today, um, in this conclusion of what seemingly seem, looks like it's a bunch of random instructions that Paul started in verse 12 about how the church is supposed to be with one another, how the church is supposed to be towards those who serve in the church, and how we our love is supposed to show. And it just seems to be randomly put together, but there's a flow to it. He finishes this admonishment and instruction to the Thessalonian church by giving the church five vital exhortations. And that'll be our outline for today. These five vital exhortations are do not quench, do not despise in verse 20, right? do not quench in verse 19, do not despise in verse 20, examine in verse 21, and hold fast also in verse 21, and abstain in verse 22. So as we unpack these five vital exhortations that Paul gives to the church, I want us to notice how there are two negatives, two negative instructions, do not, do not. And then there are two positives, which find themselves hold fast and abstain, right? Do not quench, do not despise. And then the fourth and the fifth are to hold fast and to abstain. Those are more positive. It's like, do this. But it hinges on the third vital exhortation examine so right there in the middle is where the transition happened and it's it, this where we pivot from the negative to the positive so what does it mean by do not quench the spirit what does it mean to quench the spirit how can we quench the spirit well, in order to understand what quenching the Spirit means, I think it's important to understand the Spirit's role in the church's life and your life even, and as an individual believer. Who is the Spirit? Understanding the Spirit's role in your life will then help you understand what Paul means by do not quench the Spirit. Where well, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, who abides in believers exclusively, by the way. He abides exclusively in and with believers and not in the world. As we see in John 14 and 17, the Lord says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Did you notice that? That the world cannot have the Holy Spirit because it doesn't see Him or know Him, but you know Him. So the Spirit abides in, in and with believers and not in the world. There's a, this exclusivity of, about Him. He testifies about Christ in John 15, 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
That's what he does. The Spirit witnesses about Christ. The Spirit is also who convicts the world about sin, about righteousness, about judgment. In John 16, 8, we find Jesus telling his disciples, and he, the Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is what he does. He convicts the world about what is right and what is wrong. That's righteousness. What is sinful and what is not. This is what he does in your life because he abides in you and with you. This is what he does. I'm hoping that you're seeing, you're picking up what the role of the Spirit is for the church and the believers. He convicts of, 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 of us of righteousness and sin and judgment. And he's also the one who takes the mind of Christ, if you will, and applies it to the life of the believers. Jesus teaches this in John 16, again, verses 13 and 14, when he says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak for himself, or from himself. But whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Do you notice that? He, if, as a believer, 1 Corinthians, we find that Paul saying that we, as believers, have the mind of Christ. Right? And therefore, if we have the mind of Christ, how do we actually, how is that mind of Christ applied to us? Obviously, none of us have seen the, the person, Jesus Christ, the, the incarnation, yet we trust in him, yet we are conformed into his image. It is the spirit that applies, not that, but who applies, who applies the mind of Christ to us, whether he takes of Christ and he discloses it to us. That's what his role is. He seals us, according to Ephesians chapter 1. We are sealed by him. According to John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he is the one who gives us new birth. We are born again, right? Evangelical Christians, people that believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, have now been born again. There's a second birth that Nicodemus can find out what it's about. He can, he can fathom it, and this is, this is where the Lord says, Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This is, we are born of him, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit as Christians. And it is in Him that our lives are even empowered. Paul says in Romans 8 and 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead would also give life to your mortal bodies. So your life is animated and is empowered by Him. And we're also commanded to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, right? That's Galatians chapter 5. We find Paul saying, if you walk by the Spirit, 
or walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So as the believer, we are to live and to walk and to be empowered, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's the role that the Holy Spirit plays in your life. The Holy Spirit is supposed to have the, the, the most influence, the, the guidance, the direction, the control over your life. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Having seen that, now does it make sense what Paul says in, back in our text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 19, I mean chapter, chapter 5 verse 19, 1 Thessalonians does not have 19 chapters by the way. But in verse 19 of chapter 5, does it now make sense? What Paul is saying is if the Holy Spirit is supposed to have that, it, not supposed to, because he has this control, do not diminish, do not quench, do not suppress, do not restrain his influence, his manifestation of his power in your life. His guidance. Do not suppress that. Do not quench that. Do not put out the fire of the Holy Spirit, as one commentator puts it. There's the fire of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. He burns inside of you to lead you into Christ-likeness, to glorify Christ, to be like Christ more, to, to avoid sin, to live a righteous life, and to, 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 to stand in, in judgment before God and be saved. He gives you new life. He empowers your life to do the right thing, to do the godly thing. He says, do not restrain His power. Don't put water on that fire of the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. And if we're honest and to be more practical about it, we do this every day. We, we sense the Holy Spirit t telling us that this is the right thing to do. We, 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 we hear His voice, so to speak, if you will, in our hearts, convicting us of sin, to, to, to repent from sin, but we love our sins sometimes and, and, and we, we struggle. And, and this is a reality that we find in, in Galatians chapter 5. The flesh and the spirit are, are a war. The, fle the flesh wages war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So this vital exhortation, if you were to heed to it, but do not quench the Spirit, you will be led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And this is really detrimental to your spiritual health. Quenching the Spirit, not listening to the Spirit's guidance, is detrimental. It's incredibly essential for your spiritual health. People get extremely discouraged when they quench the spirit and they go sin and then they now listen to their conviction of this sin and, and, and the enemy comes in and brings shame and guilt and then they just don't know what to do and then you get into that place of anxiety. All of it because you've quenched the spirit. So heeding to this admonishment, this instruction, holding on to it will help you be more 
discerning. It will help you more, be more mature spiritually. And spiritual health. And your spiritual health will be kept as well. Now I don't want you to, to, to hear me again. I will reiterate this. That this is not a legalistic sermon. That do this so that you can be accepted. No. Do this because you already are. John writes in his epistle, 1 John, Brothers, I, I write this to you so you may not sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate in heaven. Right? So it's not that you're not accepted, and in order to be accepted, you have to not quench the Spirit. It's you have the Spirit living in you already. He seals you. You are sealed by Him. That's a guarantee of your salvation. So walk in Him. Do not quench the Spirit. How do I know then, you would say? How do I know that I'm not just listening to some weird voice in my head? How do I know when it's the Spirit and when it's not me? How do I... How do I actually tell the difference between it's my thought and the thought of the Holy Spirit? I believe Paul has this in mind when he puts these two things together. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. The Spirit and prophecies. Which is the second exhortation. But I think defining what prophecies are what prophecy is biblically would also help us understand what Paul is trying to say and how those two things connect with one another quenching the spirit and despising prophecies now it's it's almost widely accepted in our culture a prophecy you hear prophecy you're thinking of some kind of religious fortune telling Right? Somebody comes and says, hey, you know what? You're going to be awesome. You're going you're to do great things. You're going to achieve this prosperity financially. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be an engineer. You're going to be a pastor one day. You're going to lead people. I mean, nothing wrong in prophecy can come that way. Hence, I, I am not saying, don't, I'm not despising those kinds of prophecies. So I'm not here contradicting myself. But it's not just spiritual or religious fortune telling. Biblical prophecy is a declaration of a divine message. It's a declaration of a divinely inspired message. And it's mostly accompanied by the interpretation of that. That message, we, 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 we go back and read our Old Testament and you see the prophets. They, they declare, thus says the Lord, and then they'll interpret what, what that means and its implications to the people of Israel. Right? And there is two forms of prophecy or two aspects to biblical prophecy. There's a prophecy where there's a proclamation of God's divinely inspired message where the message is just being proclaimed. And there's also a, a prediction aspect to prophecies. 
where Christ was prophesied about hundreds of years before his incarnation. That's a prediction, right? God even prophesies about the son coming through the woman's seed who would kill the serpent, right? In Genesis 3. So there's a predictive aspect and there's also a proclamation aspect to to prophecies. Regardless, though, a prophecy is a divinely inspired message. Whether it's in proclamation or prediction, it's got to be God-inspired or God-breathed. I can't just make some, something up because I just feel this warm, bubbly feeling inside of me right now. And I like the way that you are sitting and paying attention or I like, the, I like the outfit you're wearing. So I just pick you out out of the crowd and say, hey, I, I hear something. I can't just say that. It has to be divinely inspired. I wonder where we can find something like that. You know? I wonder where there is a divinely inspired, God-breathed revelation of God's will. It's hard to come by these days, right? So difficult. I'm being a, a, um, a little facetious. Because we find in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul saying, All Scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly Equipped for every good work. So scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is the divinely inspired message. It has all authority. It is sufficient for us to teach one another, to, to, to correct one another, to reproof one another, to, to train one another in righteousness so that we can do good works. So everything we need for good works and righteousness and training and correction is in Scripture. So that becomes the standard by which the Spirit applies the mind of Christ to us. There is a tendency in our time to, to pit the Spirit and the Word against each other. That the spirit works outside of the realm of the uh, outside of the realm of the scriptures or the, uh, outside of the word of uh, the the realm of the word. Don't just be always by the word all the time. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. I'm just I just want to be so sensitive to what the spirit is saying to me, and that's okay. Be sensitive to what the spirit is saying, but the spirit cannot say something that the word does not say. The Spirit cannot lead you into something that is clearly against what the Word says. 
Having said that, Paul says, don't despise it. Don't be arrogant about prophecies, about this proclamation of God's will among you. Or don't reject it altogether. Don't despise it. So, does biblical prophecy cannot be something found outside of Scripture? No. Does it necessarily have to be a chapter and a verse? A prophecy? Does it have to be? Do you have to have a chapter and a verse? I don't think so. So this exhortation is not to have a low opinion of prophecy and, and the way that we defined it and the way that we find it defined in the Bible. When there's a divinely inspired message that is being spoken to you, whether from the pulpit, whether it's in a song, whether it's in prayer, whether it's someone coming alongside in the, in the middle of the week and they are telling you something that is going to be beneficial and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction that is aligned with the revealed will of God in Scripture, do not despise it. Don't have a low view of Scripture. Don't have a low view of prophecy. Don't have this prideful rejection as if, you know what, I know everything. I know the Bible inside and out. You know, I know the, the doctrine of fill in the blank. I'm doctrinally sound. I go to this church. Or I listen to whoever. And he says this. And then have this prideful rejection of prophecy. Guard against it. Don't go down that route. So what should we do? Again, I wanted to, to show the, the connection, actually, before we go to the next step. I want you to see the connection down in your Bibles. Do not quench the Spirit and do not despise prophecies. The Spirit and the Word work in tandem. So not despising prophecies is the same as not quenching the Spirit. If you don't quench the Spirit, then you won't despise prophecies. Because the Spirit and the Word work together. I mean, we saw that in John 16, right? Jesus says, the Spirit does not speak of a, from Himself. He speaks whatever He hears me say. He glorifies me. He discloses me to you. Who says this? John, John presents Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, as the Word in John 1. He is the Word Incarnate. So the Spirit and the Word of God work in tandem. So how can we know? How can we still discern? Here's the, the, the pivotal point. Examine all things. This is a pivotal step. It is necessary, especially for our time. Because we can tell by 2050, if we continue not to go electric by electric cars, you know, the world is going to be too hot for us to survive. We can predict that. We can look at Doppler radar and say, you know what, there's a 50% chance that it might rain this afternoon. We can do stuff like that. 
We can examine our environment so well and make almost pinpoint accurate predictions and have a discerning mind when it comes to that in our time. Don't be surprised because the Pharisees and the people in Jesus' time had the same kind of ability. This is why he tells them in Luke 12, 56, you hypocrites, you know how to examine the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not examine the present time? To know that I am among you is what he's saying. To know that the Savior of the world is here to save and to, to redeem mankind. Why are you rejecting me is what he's saying. But we're so scientifically ahead from 2,000 years ago, we don't even see the need for God. Prayer is the last resort for most of us. Having a biblical worldview is kind of like lost on us. To think through and in light of what the Bible says about our lives or about our identity is kind of like, uh, I guess I'll do that on Sunday or on Friday whenever Bible study happens. That's, that doesn't come naturally to us. It's like, oh, what did, what did they say on the news? Oh, yeah, this is, this is and what, what did the science say? I have yet to meet the science, by the way. It's very timely. And John warns us in his epistle, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out in the world. We are to test, examine. Same word. Jesus says it. John repeats it. Paul also tells us here, examine all things. Because it is an integral step so that we do not quench the spirit. So that you do not despise prophecy. So that you can hold fast to what is good, so that you can reject all forms of evil. Examine so you don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecy, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from evil. Remember I said this is a really pivotal point. This is where it turns, examination. So what is biblical examination? How do we actually examine these things? Biblical examination, really, in all honesty, is it's kind of like putting something on trial, testing something out. And we find some believers um, right, after, right after Paul goes and plants this church in Thessalonica, by the way, in Acts chapter 17, you can go and read, read about it. And if you remember our time together, we started there, right? We went back to Thessalonica when Paul plants his church and we went through that. I think I'll share a couple of messages about the planting of the Thessalonian church. And Paul gets run out, ran out of, uh, of Thessalonica, and the next place that they go to is Berea. And the Berean Christians, in Acts 17, verse 11, when we're introduced to them, we find them to be, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. 
For they received the word with great eagerness. And notice what they do. Examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's what they were doing. They received it. They were eager to receive it. But they went back and checked against the Bible. Like, okay, is this, is this really what Paul is talking about? This guy named Jesus that was crucified under Pilate. Is he, is he really the one? Let me go to Isaiah 42 and see if he fulfills this. The, the, the criteria that God set before him. That's what examination is. We're called to do that. Not only we're supposed to put something to test or put it on trial, so to speak, but we're also to approve it. There's an approval process. When you examine something, think of a, think of a final that you took in school or think of at any given time. When the test happens, when, some, when a teacher, a professor, or anybody gives you a test, what they're doing is they're putting you on trial. They're giving you that test. They're testing you so that they can approve whether or not you hold under that test, whether you hold under that pressure. Does it hold up under scrutiny? And once you approve it, the third part of examination would be to actually accept it and make it your own. Accepting it as trustworthy, acknowledging its true worth, that's what examination includes. The alternative is you can put something to the test, you can disapprove it, right? It doesn't stand, it falls. Some chairs back here. It doesn't hold under, and, and it can be disapproved. And what happens when the disapproval happens, then you can't hold on to it as something to be trustworthy. You can reject it. So that's why examination is pivotal. And that takes place in the mind, because we do have the mind of Christ. It's not a mystical thing. It's not just the... The, the, the emotions that are guiding our discernment or examination, your mind has to be engaged. You have to go to the scriptures and see if it is so. If it is so, be glad. So emotions are important, but the emotional aspect of it is as a response to what the mind does. It's the mind and the heart working together. Knowledge is essential. Not just love and affection. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. As he prays for the Philippian church. And this I pray. That your love may abound still more. And more in full knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ. Did you hear that? Paul says, he wants the believer's love to be abound more, to abound more. That's the emotional, the affection aspect of it. But with full knowledge and discernment. Knowledge is in, integral. It's, 
the mind getting engaged is important so that you can approve that all things that are excellent. And on this kind of examination, Paul's exhortation pivots to the positive. Once you examine, after the Spirit-led determination of what is important, after that examination step, Paul says you should embrace it. You should hold fast to that which is good. And I want to draw your attention to what Paul says. Hold fast, not to good things, but to that which is good. There's a definite article in the Greek that's there on purpose. Because things can be good, can seemingly be good to us. But what Paul has in mind here is a specific kind of goodness, a specific kind of moral excellence. Because what is good? Who sets the standard for good? It'll be good right now. For the AC to kick in a little harder, right? So we can kind of get cooler, right? Because I'm burning up up here. I don't know about y'all. It'd be a good thing for someone to walk in and give every person in this room a million dollars. Wow. That'd be good. But that's not the kind of good that Paul is talking about. That definite article is there because he's talking about a specific kind of goodness. A specific kind of moral excellence that is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus saying to the rich young ruler when he came up to him and he says, Hey, good teacher, what must I do to be, to, to be saved? Or to to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus stops him and says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he goes on and tells him, okay, just follow the Ten Commandments. And he says, oh, I've done it. He's saying, I'm morally excellent. Like I have met God's moral moral expectations and his excellence to a T, he tells him. And Jesus says, okay, well, in that case, let's start at number one. No other God before Yahweh. So leave everything, sell all you have, give it to the poor, follow me. Because there's no other God but Yahweh, right? And the guy walks away sad because he could not meet the moral excellence that God requires that is found in Christ. So the standard of this goodness Paul is talking about is not man-centered. It's not materialistic. It's not temporal. They are Christ-centered. And Paul is saying, faithfully embrace the things 
that will lead you to Christ-likeness, to godliness, and to edification, to be built up into the image of the Son of God. That's what we should hold on to. That's what it means to hold on to that which is good. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes to, the, to that church and says, you know what, all things are lawful to me. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So we are free. You are free to make a decision whether to go left or to go right without worrying about the, condemn, the condemnation for your soul. But does it build you up into the image of Jesus Christ? That's the litmus test that you can easily and practically apply. Whatever it is that's going to make you more like Christ, whatever response, whatever behavior, whatever it is that's going to make you spirit-led and make you look more like Christ and edify you and build you up or build the people around you, that's what you hold on to once you examine. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Does my action, does my choice, how does it bring glory to God? It is practical for our congregation, especially because most of us are always pondering whether or not it's the right decision to make. I'm, I, there's, uh, there's, there's people that are contemplating what school to go to, for instance, what job to pick because they just got out of school. Or is it right for me to, to have long hair, short hair, or tattoos, or not tattoos, or whatever else that you are pondering and you're, you're struggling with your, with your family, your parents, those things. How do we examine those things? How do we know to, what to hold on to, what to reject? Does it lead to Christ-likeness? You're free. You want to have long hair? Sure. God is not going to send you to hell because you... You have long hair. He's not. Because how long is long enough anyways, right? Or how short is short enough? God is not going to condemn you for that. I want to go to this school versus that school. God is not going to say, why did you go to, to this school when you're supposed to go to that school and you know what? You're out. God is not going to say, oh, you picked that job, or you picked that person, or you picked that one. You're free to do that. And all things are lawful. But what Paul is saying, not all things are profitable, and not all things build up. So how is that decision going to build you up and build those around you up into looking more like Jesus Christ. Once you realize that, once you find that out, because you don't despise prophecy and because the Spirit is at work in you and you're not quenching the Spirit because you know that, you can actually embrace it. 
that can be your own. You can walk in it. You can be safe knowing that. You can be secure in knowing what you have done is according to God's will. And the more you embrace godliness and Christ-likeness, the more you abstain from all forms of evil. That's the last point. As you hold on to godliness, as you're, it's, it's kind of, the, the, the Greek is the, the root word for both hold on or hold fast and abstain has the same root. It's almost poetic. So as you hold on with one, you're holding off with the other. That language of put on and put off that Paul talks about. You're putting off the old stuff and you're putting on the new. But not just certain types of evil, right? Hold off addiction to pornography. Hold off being in an LGBTQ. Or hold off stealing the, from the bank. You know, hold off going out and committing murder. No, Paul says, listen, look, look at what he says in verse 22. Abstain from every form of evil. Avoid those things. Abstain from it. Hold off from every form of evil. What does that mean, every form of evil? I want us to go and look at Colossians 3. I think it gives a good description of, it's not an exhaustive list, but it gives us a, a really good picture of the categories of evil. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Paul says, so as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that's who you are, holy and beloved, elect of God, put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now look up to verse 8. Same chapter, verse 8. But now you also lay them aside or put off wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. That's not an exhaustive list of vices, but now look up some more to verse 5. We're kind of reading backwards. Therefore, Consider the members of your earthly bodies as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. He gives these categories of evil. There is sexual evil, which is displayed there's this 
religious or spiritual evil, so to speak, impurity, unholiness, something that exercising false religion would, would have you. This false kind of this greed that that defines our day-to-day um, activities and, and behaviors. And there's also this evil desire that is at the center of conflict, according to James, who says, what is the reason for your conflicts between you? Isn't it the evil desire that's in, in, any, in all of you? Has he asked that? So these categories of evil, Paul says, despise them, abstain from them, avoid them, hold them off at a distance, don't even get close. How can we do that? Is it possible for us to actually heed to these five exhortations? They're really vital. They're important. But can you? And what does happen once you realize that you can't? But that's the good news of the gospel, right? That we are unable, our righteousness is like a filthy rag before God. You are not good enough. We are not good enough in and of ourselves. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, who perfectly kept the law, who never quenched the spirit, who never despised prophecies. In fact, he fulfilled all prophecies. He held on to what is that which was good. Despite what it, what it did to his body, right? And he abstained from every form of evil. Think of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the evil one. Every single time he overcame so that you and I, friends, can have eternal life, can be sealed by his spirit, can be empowered by him through his word. to hold fast to which is good and to abstain from evil, to be discerning, to have the mind of Christ. So friends, consider Jesus Christ when you read this. See him in this passage. See the gospel being preached to you. Preach the gospel to your hearts. And I pray that the Spirit applies this to, to each and every one of your situations. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know what your struggles are. I don't even know if you're a believer, for real. But there's hope. There's power. 
in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the time that you have allowed us to have this morning to worship you, to honor you, to sing you praises, to read from your word and to pray that you would apply your word to our lives and to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to speak to one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs and to, to, to edify one another by the giving and the preaching of your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for your spirit that is a work in us, that dwells in and with us, who will never leave us, who applies the truth of Jesus Christ to our hearts and to our lives in whatever situation we're in who gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to behold the magnificent things, the prophetic word that is in your scripture. Father, we ask you to give us a discerning heart, discerning mind, so that we may examine all things and hold fast to Christ-likeness and godliness and reject all forms of evil. Lord, we can't do it on our own unless your Spirit leads us, unless your Spirit empowers us, unless He gives us the insight to your Word. Father, let us do all things, whether we eat, whether we sing, whether we work, go to school, whatever we do, let us do it for the glory of your name and the honor of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can bear the fruit of your Spirit in our day-to-day -day lives. Lord, if there's anyone that is in our midst has not put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls, I pray that your Spirit is a work in them in this moment, that they will repent and believe, and see the hope and the love and the righteousness of Christ, crucified on the cross, resurrected from the dead, ascended to heaven, and will come back to accomplish His salvation and glory in and among us. Father, I pray that you convict them of that truth and they may believe and trust in him. We pray these things, Lord, in your son Jesus' name. Amen.